you don't seem to want to accept the fact that you're dealing with an expert in guerrilla warfare. With a man who's the best. With guns, with knives, with his bare hands. A man who's been trained to ignore pain. Ignore weather. To live off the land. To eat things and to make a billy goat puke. In Vietnam, his job was to dispose of enemy personnel. To kill. Period. Win by attrition. Well, Rambo was the best. done so much podcasting today let's just let's get let's another just, one going yeah, yeah. Uh, welcome to michael and us <laughs> i'm will sloan here as always with oh hey everyone luke savage on i don't know feels like my fifth or sixth hour of podcasting today well, i'm glad you could make time for us <laughs> just uh, coming out of the you know the posting trenches behind the lines to do another one of these well you know as we learned from the character in the movie we watched today you may leave the posting trenches but the posting trenches never fully leave you <laughs> but we'll get to that in a moment <laughs> Luke, tomorrow you're actually on your way to do some foreign intervention in the American election. You're traveling to Boston in advance of Super Tuesday. Now, why are you doing such a thing? Well, I'm also visiting family, but um, yeah, I wasn't able to, uh, you know, get down and help in, in New Hampshire, which I was planning to do, um, or Iowa. So uh, this seemed as, as good a time as any. Massachusetts is a Super Tuesday state. We don't know what's going to happen in South Carolina, but... Uh, Tuesday is going to be a really big day, and um, if I can find anything to write about, if I can find the time to write while I'm there, I will. But um, real shoe leather journalism, or, <laughs> you know. But uh, you know, I'm going to try to help out with some canvassing, some lit drops, something like that. Um, you know, I, Monday I, and Tuesday. I've been so moved seeing these accounts of canvassers talking to people, getting people excited. Like it seems that for the people who do the canvassing, it's a real like soul nourishing. Oh thing, yeah, which is hard for me to understand because mm-hmm. for me, the idea of going up to somebody's terrifying, house, knocking on mm-hmm. the door, and and representing a political candidate mm-hmm. uh, awful mm-hmm. i mean you've run for public office you've that's had, right you've yeah. had to canvas for yourself i mean that in and of itself has some weird i don't know if we've talked about it in the pod but that's that's a little weird when you know you have to be kind of a salesman for yourself but but i think with canvassing you know once you get over the initial you know i i you know i'm not gonna lie i used to be pretty terrified of it you know when i kind of first was getting involved in political campaigns uh you know in university and stuff like that but you know you kind of do it a few times and um and when i say a few times i mean literally you go to a few houses and that fear you know tends to go away i mean the worst that can happen usually is somebody you know might yell at you or or whatever mostly that doesn't happen though and Oftentimes, you you actually have really important conversations with people. You know, you meet a lot of people where no one's really ever asked their opinion about anything before, and they're kind of flattered. I should say also, you know, just to anybody who might be thinking about canvassing for Bernie who's who's listening to this, you probably don't have to canvass door to door if you really are uncomfortable with that. There's other things that campaigns need. I haven't worked campaigns in the states before, but here in can you know, but they're 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 fairly similar. Campaigning is pretty similar in most places. There's lots of stuff you can do. Campaigns need people to process their data, the the sheets that come back from canvassing. You know, they need people to put up signs. They need people to drop off literature, and you can just tell a campaign office that they will be happy to have volunteers. But one of the things that's been great about this whole Bernie moment, and I do feel like a lot more people are canvassing this time, a lot more people are out than they were a few years ago, is how there's this sense of kind of collective strength. Like so many people are doing this, 
and any insecurity that you might have about doing it or any kind of reservations, everyone kind of supports each other. And, uh, and that makes the whole, the whole business a lot easier. And you're all doing something across the country for this common cause that can bring uh, so many different kinds of people from so many walks of life together. I don't want to discourage people from canvassing uh, because what you said was very moving. But tell me the, again the story that I like so much of when you went canvassing the first time you went canvassing <laughs> as as a political candidate. The, fir- the first house I went to, you know, I was I was so psyched up. I was like, all right, you know, I'm a politician now. Let's let's do this. And uh, you You're know, running I, as a member of provincial parliament. Yeah, well, for, yeah, I was running. I was running to uh, yeah to try to represent a seat in, in Ontario's provincial parliament. And it was um, kind of a no hope ride. Right. Yeah, although the the NDP did win it in the following election, wow. but um, but yeah, no, I mean it was it, it's a it's a very, it's very tough riding for the NDP. It's you know it's fairly affluent, and you know it's not a place that I think until 2018 it ever sent a new Democrat to Queens Park. So yeah, I mean you know I, I was walking around, it was all official. I had a little you know I had a handler with me and everything, and yeah, the first house you know all psyched up. The lady just starts yelling at me. I couldn't really understand what she was saying. Basically slammed the door in my face, not an exaggeration, kind of like chased me off the porch, just sort of shooed me off the porch. <laughs> uh-huh. So not the best kind of, not the most auspicious start to my weeks-long political career. I will say that whenever conservative party candidates have come to my door, I've always been very polite. You've had a conservative and candidate come to your door. I, well, I, I would be starstruck. M- multiple, multiple really? times. Some, yeah. some heavy hitters? Can you remember any of their names? Uh, well, I mean, again, <laughs> And I was in a no hope riding for the conservatives. <laughs> I mean, it was basically either a liberal or an NDP stronghold. Uh-huh. I do not relish the idea of getting in a fight with, you know, a political candidate on my doorstep. No. But, you know, I was in an apartment building that was, uh, I, I just feel very strongly that maybe 10% of the people in my apartment voted. So right. I, I got the sense the conservative candidate was having a hard time that afternoon. <laughs> and I didn't want to waste their time. For some additional kind of campaign themed content, we've got a special episode coming up with friend of the show, Bronco Marchatich. Uh, he and I today recorded a conversation about his book just out from Verso and Jacobin, Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. So look forward to that soon. And you can expect the Patreon to have a few more uh, kind of bonus bonus goodies, you know, little interviews, l- little little extra non-canonical content. Yeah, we're, we're going to, you know, we're going to do more stuff like that. Um, for those who don't know, and, you know, it's not your fault if you don't because we're really bad at plugging this, but we do have a Patreon where we put... Uh, I mean, we we put an an episode there every two weeks that's kind of paywalled, that's just for our patrons. But we also put kind of miscellaneous discussions, and we're we're starting to do more things. So if you enjoy uh, the regular shows and you want to hear more from us, um, you can join. Uh, it's the the Al Gore level, uh, which is currently I think the only level of a subscription and one day I hope to you know I want to have a Lieberman tier and and you know maybe a Kasich level <laughs> I don't know a multi-level uh, scheme <laughs> but yeah check us out there if you want uh, some extra content for uh, for five dollars a month you can get uh, just that much more Luke and Will oh man <laughs> who could resist <laughs> uh, so we, we just wanted to kind of relax on this episode we wanted to have a night Luke and me just boys being dudes hanging out <laughs> Getting down to our undershirts and uh, lifting some weights and eating some chicken Put, wings. Putting up drywall. And enjoying uh, an action movie, you know, a, a, movie, a movie for the guys. And we settled. And did we ever? Man, we settled on, and I just want to point out, I've seen this movie twice in the last year. 
You're a trooper. So, uh, I saw this movie opening weekend. <laughs> a veteran, if you will. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's haunted me ever since. I'm just sitting in my home and I get flashbacks of this movie. <laughs> I saw this movie opening weekend and I said, well, I mean, if I if there was ever a slam dunk for this podcast, it's this one. <laughs> it is 2019's Rambo Last Blood starring Mr. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone. lived in a world of death. I've watched people I've loved die. Some fast with a bullet. Some not enough left to bury. Yeah, I'm gonna take my horse to the old town road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. All these years I've kept my secrets. But the time has come to face my past. And if it comes looking for me, they will welcome death. This movie, you know, very much fits into the canon of kind of extremely racist reactionary action movies we've done along with uh was it death wish one or two? three it death was three. wish three we should do death wish yeah. one at some point though. oh yeah and i've only seen i've seen the first rambo movie which is legitimately good yeah and i wasn't quite prepared i think for how bargain basement this movie was <laughs> you know i expected it to be extremely racist which it was and, and we'll get to that hideously reactionary film but the first thing that sticks out to you is that it looks like a movie uh, you know, you know when you go to like a gas station, and for some reason, you know, some gas stations will have like a rental regime of their own, where yeah. they will just have like a really sad little shelf with like five movies, so you know mm-hmm. you can rent, you know, Jingle All the Way, or you know, and and yeah. uh, a Civil Action with John Travolta, yeah, and and yeah, maybe they have like a copy of like Gone with the Wind or Titanic. Yeah. They always have Titanic, yeah, and then you'd you'd find you find a bunch of action movies that you'd never heard of and this would be this this would be one of them or this kind of thing it feels like a steven seagal movie it looks like a movie you could easily substitute steven seagal for stallone you could substitute any kind of down market action star um any kind of aging yeah former you know it's much more of a taken movie than it is a rambo movie and i have a theory that that i bet this script didn't even begin as a rambo script oh yeah well because like as you as you pointed out you know i asked you did does this movie have anything to do with rambo 3 and i mean apart from the fact that he shows the farm that this movie's partly set at he kind of shows up to it at the end of that movie there's really no connection is there yeah, I think it was just probably a very quick rewrite they did on whatever whatever generic race. It, like, it feels like the sort of movie where it's like, you've got some independent producers at Cannes who are like, okay, we've got Sylvester Stallone, and we've got this this kind of racist, generic, taken ripoff. And uh, that's not quite enough juice to get all the financing we need. Okay, let's, let's get one of Stallone's iconic characters in there. What if we made it a Rambo movie? Oh, hey, we just sold it to 20 more territories. Yeah. Nevertheless, it is a Rambo movie. Uh, uh, John Rambo is back. He is no longer in the Eastern Hemisphere. In fact, for the last, I want to say, 10, 15 years, he's been on a farm in Texas. The movie, I knew what the entire movie was going to be within the first five minutes because it's like, okay. The ingredients are John Rambo's on a farm near the border in Texas. Uh, He's the kind of uh, patriarchal figure in this kind of adopted family with 
like an auntie and his and his young niece who has a, an estranged father in Mexico. Right, the auntie and the niece are Mexican. Right, and, and so she starts musing very early on in the movie, but she wants to go find out, you know, what happened with her father or whatever. Hey, I'll tell, I'll tell you something. That father, <laughs> father years, that, that man's got a black heart. Yeah. And they don't, they don't get better. But, but, but Uncle John, in you spite got these, better. In spite these... I <laughs> didn't get better. <laughs> so in spite those eloquent pleas on, the, you know, on John Rambo's part, she, of course, goes into Mexico. And the entire movie wrote itself. Like I said, so she's going to go to Mexico. She's going to get kidnapped by, like, cartels or something. And he's going to have to go rescue her. The only thing I failed to predict was that the movie ends in a kind of Home Alone-style siege. But beyond that, the whole movie writes itself. So, of course, she goes into Mexico... She meets up with a friend. She goes to find her dad. Her dad is a piece of shit. And then, as the movie would What's have us... What's the next scene after that? Right. So so we knew exactly what, what where this was going next, which is like, okay, so she and her friend are clearly going to go into a den of depravity. So they end up at, like, a club or something. And then, uh, you, you know, got she... got strobe lights, yeah, got drugs. Just, just depravity in a depraved foreign land, as the movie would have it. And, um... So of course she gets kidnapped by like a gang or something, and and he has to he has to rescue her. And she gets forced into sex trafficking. You know when I when I first saw this movie, I'm thinking, okay, well he's gonna rescue her before anything bad happens to her. Rambo's gonna save his niece. No, she is sold into sex slavery. She is assaulted a number of times. It's implied. Rambo, you know, he he he's first uh, beaten by the gang, but then he has his revenge on the gang. And he gets kind of like mutilated. They cut his face and stuff. Yeah, but he's eventually able to save her. The plot is sort of like The Searchers, actually. I actually do think yeah, this, The Searchers yeah. was probably an influence on this movie. For those who haven't seen The Searchers. Not uh, not as good a movie as this. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, John Wayne is trying to find his daughter, Natalie Wood, who's been taken by, he thinks, taken by indigenous people. And there's a, a very famous and uh, complicated moment in The Searchers where John Wayne is on the cusp of killing his own daughter. Isn't it? I mean, it's partly that it's I mean, the sexual politics of the side. It's partly just she's been like corrupted because she's not like white anymore, right? She's part of the right, right, she, right. But the thing is, this Rambo movie isn't even as progressive as The Searchers, uh, so, which is a movie made in what, like nineteen? 19- <laughs> yeah, yeah, like a famously uh, complicated yeah. text. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so in this movie, of course, Rambo saves his niece and he's driving her back to his farm. And he says, no, uh, listen, it wasn't your fault. You know, it's not your fault. But of course, she dies on the way home. Which I was I was surprised by. This is a turn in the movie that kind of made it more interesting. And I don't mean that as a compliment. It's just that it added another layer, a little bit more texture to what, up until that point, is a completely paint-by-the-numbers affair. The texture it adds is just another layer of ugliness piled on top of, you know, uh, all the ugliness that's there already. Um, One thing to say about this movie is it is extremely gross. So there's a scene where uh, when Rambo first interacts with a gang where he like rips a guy's collarbone like out of his, 
you know neck yeah. or whatever he, he shoves his thumb into yeah and you neck. and you see it like it's quite graphic um and when they cut his face you see that too mm. like you see a knife going into his face and so this gets at kind of what the movie is actually doing which is that it's it's just a despicable revenge fantasy with these kind of one which is about how you know young women need a, a strong patriarchal figure otherwise you know they lose any sense of direction they make bad decisions and bad things happen to them and another which is you cross the border and this is what happens because the, bo- the on the other side of the border is is depravity and so this then culminates after she dies in a kind of you know for want of a better analogy home alone style standoff where there's a montage a, a pretty entertaining montage to be honest where this is when the movie starts to pick up yeah where he where he basically fortifies the farm and uh you know the auntie leaves because it's not safe there anymore he he gets the horses out of there he builds like booby traps and fortifications and you see him making ammo out of like magnesium deposits and things like that and luckily enough he's already built an elaborate tunnel system Uh uh-huh but there's a twist and this is what's so funny about this movie and like it has to layer on the revenge fantasy so hard because I was saying like, how do they know he's going to be there? Like he's just anticipating that they're going to come. And I thought like, well, this doesn't really make sense. I mean, some random guy drove in from the United States and how would they know where the farm was? The movie has an explanation, which is that he drives back into Mexico (laughs) and just like attacks one of their, you know, camps or something and he beheads. Behead, beheads one of the big bosses. He beheads one of the big bosses. And then there's a scene where you see him driving along the highway and he throws the head out of the window <laughs> and it bounces, bloodied skull bounces along the road. And then you see him driving through the, the border fence, which of course is depicted as just, you know, a crummy layer of bar- barbed wire. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess that part of the wall hasn't been built yet. And he leaves like a clue that's a picture of his, you know, dead niece with like a knife through it or whatever, so that they know who's done this. Um, so he's just like beckoning like, Come on, them. over yeah, here. Yeah. Why, why aren't you coming? And I then we trapped my house. And then there is this just insane off the wall shootout that is so violent and i mean i expected this movie to be violent but this is a whole other level like you know he set these booby traps where it's like spikes going through guys heads or you know like spike goes through one guy's head and then the other guy starts shooting through the wall but then he's made a special crevice in the wall where he can fall down and use like a knife that he's got on his leg to cut the guy's foot off which you then see uh he's got a boom box in the ceiling so he starts playing like pump up music while he's like just executing these Mexican gangsters. Um, it reminded me of that scene in, in Fahrenheit 9-11 where there's the, like, the... The, the roof is on Yeah, fire. yeah, where they're driving in the tank. Um, it's like that. Uh, extremely fucked up. And then it culminates in, you know, he finally gets the, the big boss or whatever, and he shoots him, like, with ten arrows from, like, a crossbow or something. And then he kills him by, like, literally ripping his heart out of his chest. And this is where I was thinking, you know, this movie would actually work if it leaned into this and became a kind of Evil Dead 2 style camp. Because then it would just be like an ironic deconstruction of over the top right wing, like, you know, Death Wish style movies. But it's not that. It actually just is, you know. Yeah, it has a message to deliver. Yeah, and the message is an extremely ugly one delivered in the ugliest way possible. I do think that there's a good possibility that this may be the most racist American movie since Birth of a Nation. (laughs) Major American movie. And it's very funny to me that this movie was just released in like 
3000 theaters last right. fall and no backlash no backlash and you know S- sylvester stallone like he was on talk shows promoting this movie <laughs> i didn't i didn't see any of those appearances but i mean i'm sure it was just like you know he went on kimmel yeah was like or like jimmy jimmy fallon <laughs> yeah. was like like so sly yeah you've been playing rambo for 40 years now what what, what, what does the character mean to you hey well you know i, I don't know it's rambo he's like he's uh he's just kind of, yeah, kind you, of american you knock you know? him down and be all you get back up you know? yeah you know he's like he's got he's got the, the spirit the spirit yeah <laughs> so so how, how does how does this rambo compare compare to the last the last one hey well you know it's, it's a different time but uh but you know some things some things are always there you know when I when I saw it, I was I was talking to to my good friend uh, Ethan Vesby, who who observed, you know, it, this movie was coming around the time that stuff like Joker was coming out, and there was so much kind of backlash and so much kind of scrutiny about movies like that, but there was no backlash whatsoever for this movie, which is more problematic than something like Joker in every conceivable way. And I think the only explanation for that is just that this is a movie that either people did never heard of it or it was just safely written off as well only the deplorables will watch this yeah i mean i guess the simplest explanation is that if it only had a you know a relatively small theatrical release a lot of people just didn't you know hear about it or they didn't see it but except I think, it went in three thousand theaters i mean i guess that i guess that yeah. is a lot of theaters but there's a possible cultural explanation which is just that a movie like this doesn't really you know, penetrate the sort of, uh, you know, metropolitan bubble that generates those sort of backlashes because it's kind of just a red state movie. It's like how those big evangelical films, some of which are, are huge, so many people see them, those don't really get backlashes because, because you know, people in blue states don't really watch them. Yet there was no attempt to cancel Sylvester Stallone over the abject racism of this movie. Like, like, you know, and folks, that's why we're starting the campaign. (laughs) Tweet on the hashtag cancel Sly. (laughs) Listen, Sylvester Stallone, he's, he's close to my heart. I love the man. I don't want to cancel him. I never want to cancel Sylvester Stallone. I, I cannot have the cancellation of Sylvester Stallone at my feet. That said, uh, people have been canceled for a lot less than this movie. Oh, I love it. Let's, let's talk about Rambo, because everyone's uh, buzzing okay. about Rambo. This is uh, Rambo Last Blood. That, should I assume? This oh, is- yeah, this is when he's preparing. A lot of things have happened in his life recently, tragic, and he's now preparing for, dare I say it, revenge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's looking for a little revenge. He's looking he for a little is. payback yeah. here. But w- what does last blood mean? Does that mean this is the last one? Yeah, well, I have two ways of saying it. There's thinking about it. It's like last blood, either we <laughs> we kill so many people, there's no more blood left in the world. <laughs> yeah, in the whole world. Yeah, the whole world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> we need more blood. I'm definitely, I think, when I'm on Twitter, uh, torn between two worlds. I already feel ridiculous saying this because talking about Twitter under any circumstances. I mean, we did a whole episode about your Twitter ban, so I think the Rubicon has already been crossed. This is how you know this is a real serious podcast about the issues. When we're just talking about like a thing that happened on Twitter. Exactly. <laughs> uh, guys, Twitter isn't real life. So, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a politics Twitter superstar, but I'm also a film Twitter superstar. And something that I've noticed, you know, a, a chasm that has emerged on my Twitter feed is that the film Twitter people, especially I want to say like film Twitter men between you know the ages of like 37 and 50 are all in for Elizabeth Warren. They love her. 
you see this you see this all the time it's like oh god gosh elizabeth warren was so was really good in the debate there's a there's a two tweet arc that keeps happening over and over again yeah there yeah they all say something along the lines of uh, gosh, I'm going to be voting for Elizabeth Warren in in the Illinois primary, or the, yeah, or the Los Angeles. Or they primary. tell there's some kind of like fan fictiony thing they say about it, and then there's a which you know is usually pretty mild and like apolitical. And they're not anti Bernie people necessarily. Well, at least uh, sometimes not, not overtly. Uh, but then you know there's always a second tweet where it's like the two kind of slight pushback replies they've got of, of really incense him, and they're like. Uh, gee, gee, uh, you can't even you can't even say anything unless you're unless you're a Bernie cultist, you know. You, you yeah, know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's especially funny for film Twitter guys, like you know, guys who are like freelance film writers or or bloggers or even st- staff film writers. Yeah, like, they're here to tell you about the, the latest Marvel movies, Fellini. Or yeah, whatever. exactly. Yeah. They're, they're here to say, you know, I really hope Elizabeth Warren wins because I think I think she's the one who will get the most done in the it's White time House. to make America smart again. It, yeah, time to make America smart again. And then <laughs> I like that you've invented a new character, <laughs> the film Twitter guy voice. <laughs> I'm uh, 39 years old. <laughs> oh my god. And then, and yeah, then there's that one where they're always, they're talking about the Bernie bros and the pushback. And if you go back and you look at the replies, literally it's two or three people and they're all saying, I don't have insulin. Yeah. I would really like (laughs) Bernie to win. Uh, My father died of a preventable disease. And, and, And of course, this is just an unforgivable assault. I get it. If you spend 15 years writing movie reviews that nobody reads, uh, <laughs> it, it, it can be a huge shock to get any pushback at all. Uh, it, <laughs> what you know? What's great about what's great about this is Will began this riff by talking about how he's torn between two worlds, and and I, I would I would add to that a compliment. The compliment to that here is that you're also seeing the duality of man when it comes to Will Sloan. You're seeing the earnest side of him that's tied up in Bernie Twitter, and then also the uh, the malevolent punching down side that, <laughs> that that character that he plays as as kind of an alpha dog in film Twitter. Thing is, when I see film Twitter guys talking about like the Bernie bros, I have so little respect for it because it's like, listen, you guys make your, your meager living uh, having opinions. So get a thicker skin. And also, if you're tweeting about politics, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. Well, you have to have an opinion. You have to maybe at least be prepared to defend it or if not defend it, engage on it or something. And And I'm sorry, having opinions about politics, this comes with the territory. People are going to challenge you. Yeah. Uh, and, And either you learn from it or you defend your position. If you love Elizabeth Warren, great. Well, Let, let's hear your case. There was a tweet you showed me before. We don't need to bring it up or whatever. But it was just a guy who like, you know, it was some meme where it was a bunch of characters from a children's movie. Yeah, but, inside Out. Right, Pixar right. Film. But, but, you know, as U.S. presidential candidates. And there was one, you know, with like a halo that, you know, it's a, like a, a glow around her that says Warren. And there's the angry guy. There's an Bernie. angry red one that's Bernie. And then, the, and you know, the... It's tweeted with no caption or anything, and then it, you know, the follow-up is like uh, sad for anyone who read that remarkably dumb tweet as anti-Bernie, you know, blah 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 blah. Um, you know, so it's just that kind of thing where it's like it's not even really expressing an opinion. It's just it's their aesthetic preference expressed in like a really dumb, just apolitical meme, and then they can't even handle like 
you know, modest pushback on that. Right. Okay. So what I liked about that meme, so that was a, a meme about the movie Inside Out, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm sure some of our listeners will have seen. And the the anger character, the character of anger is Bernie. And there's an implication somehow that, that anger... That's inherently bad. That's inherently bad. And I, I want to bring up... This is an article that's been mocked to death, but I do want to bring it up because I think it's relevant in this discussion. <laughs> I do want to mock it some more. <laughs> I, I do, because I'm never not thinking about this article. It was an article from IndieWire called The New Wave of Nice Core: How the Dark Age of Donald Trump is Inspiring Movies to Choose Kindness Over Conflict. Uh, I know, doesn't it just make your eyes bleed uh, looking at it? And this this was an article from 2018 where it was kind of a desperate trend piece where it was suggesting, okay... Uh, here are movies that can show us a different path from Donald Trump. And the the three movies that we're hanging this trend on are Paddington 2, uh, the Mr. Rogers documentary, and an art house film that I can't remember and nobody's heard of. Can, can I interject quickly to make another point? A, a, a complaint I have about this kind of thing is it looks like it reflects a, a trend in you know writing and in sort of content factory stuff that I really hate, which is... This person saw a bunch of movies and then they constructed a narrative around them as a as a generalized kind of cultural narrative as mm-hmm. opposed to just like these were the movies I saw and this is how I responded to them. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like uh, just because you saw a bunch of movies that made you feel happy doesn't mean that that's like a master narrative in, in society. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, he picked three movies out of how many movies come out in a year? 500? Uh-huh. Yeah. Like like three movies, like none of which made more than $40 million <laughs> at the box office. So it's like we're not even talking about like... The big ones. Yeah, we're not because talking about... Because you probably the- could. If you took... If your parameters were like... Like the the five blockbusters, like four of them were like the biggest blockbusters. Four of them fit this, yeah. you know, nice core taxonomy that might actually work. But I suspect this doesn't. So take us through it. So the author of the nice core article was also the author of that inside out meme <laughs> where it was, uh, I, I'm going to charitably suppress his name, where the, the Bernie person was the anger thing. And I, when I saw him post that meme, it's like, oh, OK, I get it. For this person, anger Anger is bad. Mm-hmm. Anger is doesn't tr- matter what it's about. Yeah, anger is Trumpian, and what yeah. what, what matters is is kindness, mm-hmm. and niceness. Actually, okay, this is just you know. So it's come to this a Michael and us Twitter Twitter episode. But mm-hmm. uh, a tweet I saw earlier today from some blue checkmark lib account I'd never seen before, where it was like a, a Bernie fundraising email. And it said, like, the subject line was, it's us against them. Mm-hmm. And then the text of the email was all about, you know, uh, we're fighting billionaires and the political establishment with their super PACs and whatever. And this person was incensed about this and was like, I don't know how a candidate can invoke Dr. King and talk about, like, peace and love while sending a Trumpian email like this. It's us against them, really? Am I part of the them? Like, I, I oh, feel man. attacked or whatever. And it's like... If you feel attacked by something that, like, the dichotomy being advanced here is one between the majority, the Democratic majority, small donors doing this grassroots campaign against, like, a very tiny cadre of, you know, political operatives and the exorbitantly rich. Mm -hmm. And if you're offended by that, like, I guess what the person was offended by is just the idea of conflict at all being, you know, invoked in in the context of a presidential campaign. It's like, if you're actually offended by that, what you're telling us is that you're siding with the billionaires. That's coded to you as an attack on you 
like that tells us something about you that's not very good. Well, you know, there's that old quote that, you know, there are no poor people. There are only temporarily embarrassed millionaires. And I, I like to think that that's what that is. It's, you know, people see the word democratic establishment and they think, well, I could be the democratic establishment. <laughs> Nancy Pelosi is my friend. How'd you like the backlash to that Bernie tweet from, I think, last week where he said something like, uh, I have news for the Republican establishment. I have news for the Democratic yeah, establishment. I mean, they won't stop us. Yeah, I mean... Uh, and then you saw all these people like, I don't know, Ava DuVernay or Jonathan Van Ness from Queer Eye mm-hmm. who were like, oh, I don't like this. Mm-hmm. And then again, after after being inundated with all these toxic Bernie bros right. talking about how they can't afford insulin. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah, they're like they do a follow-up tweet where it's kind of a mea culpa but then it's also like it's but wow, half you guys apology need to and learn half something like about coalition building. Yeah, you know, yeah. me who yeah. never ever would have voted for Bernie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't even know where to begin with the backlash to that particular Bernie tweet. It's like if you if you hear the word establishment and you feel attacked, that again, that's probably not a good sign about where your loyalties are. So anyway, it's it's been strange to me that there has been, as I said, this tendency among you know late thirties, early forties, <laughs> late forties, getting da- of, flying close to the sun here with this kind <laughs> of film critic bloggers. Say you know, more, Will. And, and also like white white male. It's a game of guess who. I want. Does say. he have a mustache? <laughs> <Does> he... <laughs> I mean, honestly, I could be describing 20 <laughs> Yeah, you're people. right, you're right. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm genuinely not targeting anyone uh-huh. specifically. But there is a tendency among these guys to, to really love Elizabeth Warren. And I'm not quite sure what to uh, link it to. Well, it's not really ideological, right? There are things to like about Elizabeth Warren. Like I was saying to you before that I think a lot of the people who... Uh, you know, are go- probably going to vote for Warren in, in caucuses and primaries are probably people that just, you know, like her record as kind of a, you know, consumer rights crusader and things like that. And probably right? just believe, you know, oh, yeah, she sort of believes what Bernie yeah, believes. Yeah, right, right. More but, but that's not that's not what you're talking about here. I'm talking about extremely online guys. Yeah, extremely online okay. guys who... Guys who, who should know better. Who have, who have an attachment to politics that, that... They don't pay attention to politics that much. And then when they do, it's kind of like just a spectator sport. But there's a funny parallel here between this article that you bring up, the new wave of Nicecore, where... And who isn't talking about Nicecore? Yeah, it's, it's all the rage. Not, not since the French new wave. There's been, there's been such an <laughs> atomic explosion in, in the cinematic landscape. But yeah, I mean, so this Nicecore thing, I mean, it's like, it's like we're going to contrive a yeah wave of cinema based on just... You know, the Trump era bothers me personally. And so uh, here's like a kid's movie and some other things that make me feel good. And I'm going to I'm going to declare this a trend. Yeah. So it's it's a way of writing. It's a way of doing film criticism, criticism that is like affective. It's mm-hmm. you're evaluating things based on just kind of how they make you feel. Mm-hmm. And that sort of seems like there's an obvious parallel between uh, the way that, you know, I don't know, particularly extremely wealthy people who are extremely online are relating to the presidential election and also uh, some of these guys that you're talking about.
Sometimes the difference is too 